Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. As the year comes to a close, our staff is writing about our favorite sports moments of 2019. Jason Concepcion explains the year in 10 pieces of pop culture, and we break down the last 10 years of the Marvel Universe. Also, ahead of the new Star Wars movie coming out next week, the staff's discussing Baby Yoda, Rise of Skywalker romances, and what the Resistance will do if they win. You can check this all out on TheRinger.com. David, Washington, D.C.'s museum is set to close at the end of December. What I want to know is, you co-host a media podcast. Did you ever have any desire to visit <laughs> the museum? Oh, man. Um, uh, I am sure that there, at some point there was a... Uh, a journalist book launch party that I would have been like minorly envious of attending there, so, but I wasn't in the DC area. Seriously, what isn't that the biggest loss here? Like, where are all of the uh, DC journos going to have their la- their book launch parties now? <laughs> Politics and prose. Do guess- they ever even go to the museum? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the only time I ever heard of it. I'm sure there were like I'm sure there was you know I'm sure there's like a Chris Matthews panel discussion or two over the years or something. I I have no idea. I have no idea. I just I yeah. Just, I just remember the existence of the, the D, DC museums are wonderful places to have book events. That's all I really know. Like I'm sure there, I'm sure the Spy Museum is super cool, but I'm only familiar with the Spy Museum in reference to like people put it, people having book parties there. Yeah, or the Museum of Sex. You yeah. know, you just hear about it, yeah. but you never actually visit. I would think you'd have to get to like the Doris Kearns Goodwin level of fame to even rent the museum for your book party. <laughs> Also, I was just looking at their Twitter account, and this is definitely not a funny, this is definitely not a funny subject, but just it's so it is a little weird to think of trying to program the museum. Like, what the hell do you do in a in a museum that's about the media? Mm-hmm. And like, join us December 14th as we screen freelancers, Mexico. <laughs> like that's that's the film. And again, that not, not, not making fun of people who report under terrible circumstances, things like that. But like freelancers, Mexico, this is at the museum. I don't know what's going on here. We are the Omnimax of media podcasts. <laughs> this is the press box, a part of the ringer podcast network. Hello, media consumers. you got Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots and lots to get to today. We'll talk about Joe Biden's pledge to be a one-term president. We'll talk about Donald Trump, Greta Thunberg, and Time Magazine's Person of the Year. We'll talk a little Brexit reaction, a nice steaming batch of listener mail, plus the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, we got to begin with the latest from impeachment because we're finally nearing the finish line. On Friday morning, the House Judiciary Committee recommended two articles of impeachment pertaining to abuse of power and obstruction of justice to the full House. Too long didn't read. Next week, Donald Trump will become the third American president to be impeached, barring asteroid hitting the earth. Here's Trump's reaction to this morning's developments. And so I was actually doing the finals, but I got to see enough of it. And certainly I spoke to my people. It's a witch hunt. It's a sham. It's a hoax. Uh, Nothing was done wrong. Zero was done wrong. I think it's a horrible thing to be using the tool of impeachment which is supposed to be used in an emergency and it would seem many, many, many years apart to be using this 
for a perfect phone call where the president of that country said there was no pressure whatsoever, didn't even know what we were talking about. Not pictured. President Mario Abdo of Paraguay, who was <laughs> sitting next to Trump during those remarks. Our thoughts and prayers to President Abdo. David, there was a little politicking within the House Judiciary Committee about when they would do their thing. Quoting here from the New York Times, Representative Gerald Nadler, the chairman of the committee, abruptly paused the session late Thursday night before bringing the articles to a final vote, saying he wanted members to take the time to, quote, search their consciences before the historic roll call. After Republicans had dragged out the debate for hours, Democrats said they did not want such a consequential vote to occur in the dark of night when the American public was unlikely to be watching. Now, (laughs) did the Democrats mean dark of night in the back room, smoke-filled room, Washington sense, or did they mean dark of night after Brian Williams had signed off of MSNBC? Um, well, I think Brian Williams would have been happy to stick around, uh, for all hours as late as it, as late as it would take. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was at some point it began to feel like more of a little, uh, you know, slap fight where the, the Democrats decided to delay the formal vote until the next day, specifically because the Republicans were so determined to drag it out till the midnight hour, the literal midnight hour. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I know these proceedings have actually been, there's some I've heard people say that they're, they're doing good ratings, that people are paying attention to this stuff, but it it just, it, it's a little bit mind-boggling in 2019 to think that the time of day that the, impe- the impeachment vote happened or the article, the vote, that the, the, this vote happened uh, would be particularly meaningful to our digestion of it. I don't know. Is it, I mean, is it, do you think it, do you think it's significant at all? No, because I think we, we're now used to news just arriving at all times on our phone. I, I can't imagine this would have any impact outside of in the midnight hour, which you just referenced being like the bumper music either on Brian Williams' show or Joe Scarborough's in the morning. Like I don't I don't know <laughs> yes. I don't know that your average American is gonna process it. Speaking of processing impeachment, a couple pieces about the way this has been covered especially about the urgency with which this has been covered. We talked a little bit about this Tuesday. I kind of want to come back around to this discussion. This is Michael Calderon in Politico. He says the recent flurry of editorials about impeachment hasn't come close to the level two decades ago when more than 115 newspaper boards called for President Bill Clinton's resignation after the release of independent counsel Ken Starr's report, dot, dot, dot. Outlets in regions with more conservative electorates, some of which have attracted attention in 2016 by backing Democrat Hillary Clinton over Trump, have weighed in far more tentatively. That's a sign that the House impeachment hearings have yet to generate much of a groundswell for Trump's removal from office. But nor has there been any indication that editorial boards are embracing his claim that the hearings are a hoax or a coup. In a semi-related point, on Wednesday, Oliver Darcy of CNN noted none of the network newscasts had impeachment in their top three stories. So this is two days before those articles are recommended to the full house. They didn't even have it. It didn't make the top three. I don't know. I've been thinking. Yeah. I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days, just as since we talked about it and I'm almost, isn't, isn't the reason here that Americans just digest news so much more efficiently 
yeah. than, than they ever have. And that there's just so much more news out here. And these kind of metrics, both very old media metrics, right? As old as you could get your nightly network newscast and your editorial board of your local newspaper. Isn't it just, we just don't need those places anymore to give us the high sign that something important is happening. Yeah. I mean, I th- I, for sure. That's a big part of it. Um, it would be interesting to see what they led, you know, what the newscast led with, if you know, instead of impeachment. But I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the sort of steady creep of how this, I mean, of this story unfolding, um, which, you know, is, is, has had effects in both directions. But I think um, with all the, we, we talked last week about whether or not the Democrats were, you know, about this, this, this idea that they're moving slowly or moving quickly or whatever else. I, I think that, all of that is sort of irrelevant just because whatever's happened in the past, it's impossible to, to, to impose like the timelines of previous impeachment proceedings on you're right on, on how we digest news in 2019. Like it just, it's like the whole thing has been, I mean, we, we've, we've digested the whole thing in such a weird way that it just seems like it's been the same thing has been going on forever. And when news breaks, it does not feel particularly newsworthy, um, which I think is really problematic, especially at times like this when something, you know, historic is actually happening. Yeah, there's no way for it's it's much harder anyway for media to signal that this is something important you should pay attention to versus the emergency. And, and look, that's probably partially like the cable network's fault, right? They were the ones that had breaking with a big red you know, wrapper around the screen every time something happened during yep. the presidential election. Countdown and now clocks and everything like, else. Yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah. And now it's the fucking impeachment of a president. And you don't have any place to go. There's no other color to put on the screen. Right. I was just thinking you, you were talking about putting it over the timeline of past impeachments. I was thinking about this, too, because you and I, here's our old man portion of the podcast, which is obligatory. We're in college when Bill Clinton was impeached. Mm-hmm. And thinking about the media, you know, atmosphere at that point, whatever you want to call it, it's like most Americans read a couple of news articles a day about impeachment in their local newspaper, not the New York Times and Washington Post, their local newspaper. You had television, but cable news was really still in its infancy. MSNBC was only founded in 1996, two years before impeachment. And if you were really a news hound, you could get on your dial-up internet and, you know, look up the times or look up other articles and, you know, whatever you could find out there. But there just wasn't much at all. And you compare that to like the maximum amount you could get in 1998 uh, is the kind of thing you could now get in about five minutes digest. So that just, again, when we talk about like, the gravity of impeachment, the importance of impeachment, where it should rank in our mental power rankings of news. It's like, I just think that changes the equation completely. And 1998 seemed like a much bigger deal than this does today. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I honestly don't know where this lies in, in, in terms of the, you know, the argument, but, but I think we've probably said before in this podcast that when, when the Ken Starr report came out, uh, both of our college uh, computer labs were completely shut down by people just printing out this like re- everybody wanted their own ream of paper with this with the star report on it. <laughs> and part of that is just, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, we got we have 
we have free access to printers, so we're just going to run wild. But but back then, I mean, you really did have to wait for the nightly news or the paper the next day to synthesize what was going on. And if you no one no one printed that star report out and read it. But the but but the intention, or at least no one, I'm sure no one at the Baylor University Library did. Um, but but the intention obviously is that like I this is an important thing that I want to understand, and I don't have time to wait for the newspaper tomorrow, right? I mean, I, like I want to understand it right away. Now you don't need to engage. I mean, you don't need to wait for a newspaper or a, or a nightly newscast. You just find the blog that you like agree with, and they've already synthesized it for you before you'd even have a chance to print it out, right? So I mean, we. The, the, I think the synthesis, like you're saying, just happens just much more quickly, and and the public as a whole is, uh, you know, if not better informed, certainly like more informed in terms of volume um, before, you know, in a much more expedient way. When you started that sentence, we now have free access to, and yeah. you're talking about the Star Report. I did not know you were necessarily going to go with printers there. So just <laughs> FYI. Uh, David also want to talk to you about one-term Joe Biden. Politico's yeah. Ryan Lizza, who has pulled some really interesting stories about Biden out of Biden world this cycle, had a piece this week about the former V floating the idea that if elected, he would only serve one term as president. Now, floating may be kind of an inexact word because according to Lizza, Biden is hinting this to his advisors but doesn't want to make a public pledge because that would turn him into an instant lame duck. Uh, Biden thinks, or people around Biden think this, maybe this would help him with younger voters. One advisor tells Liza he's going into this thinking, I want to find a running mate. I can turn things over to after four years, but if that's not possible or doesn't happen, then I'll run for reelection, but he's not going to publicly make a one term pledge. Team Biden had all the usual denials. My first reaction to this is this feels sort of desperate. It feels like Ted Cruz makes Carly Fiorina, his running mate, desperate at yeah. that moment. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the one-term Biden idea? Um, I mean, I think desperate's uh, the right, is there, I mean, is, is, you know, says about what I was thinking about it. Uh, uh, it just seems really weird. Now I know that they, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that they wanted this news to get out there. Judging by their, their, you know, immediate denial of the story, it seemed. I mean, it would be, but the idea of floating this to help with young voters, I think, is just idiotic. I mean, just so wrongheaded. You know, I mean, this, this concept has never worked before. I mean, it would only, it would seems like only in the case of, you know, a real like national emergency. Would it work? And 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 only and, and then only if you I mean the, the implicit in that pledge is the acknowledgement that you're probably too old to be doing the job, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I I just don't understand how I don't understand what the difference is between, you know, barring some like the onset of some tragic illness or something like that. I don't understand what the what the distinction is between, you know, month forty-eight and month forty-nine, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to, is that you're just like claiming that. You're not going to be up to the job by the time the term is over, which just seems like a really bad platform for someone who's, you know, already who this question, you know, the question of age is already an issue. Um, it just seems like you're kind of like in, instead of remedying that that question, instead of answering it in a positive way, you're sort of you're just giving it more oxygen. You know, I mean, it just seems it just seems really weird. It's, yeah, it's kind of an admission that you're old now. Right. And that maybe you're too old to be president now. The timing is weird because I think you and I both agree over the last few weeks, it seemed 
started to seem a lot more likely that Joe Biden is actually going to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, a pretty decent bet right now. It's not a guarantee. You know, there's a path for Elizabeth Warren. There's a path for Bernie. There's a path for a lot of people, but it, it doesn't seem like that. You know, if Joe Biden wins Iowa, he's probably going to be the nominee. If he loses Iowa, New Hampshire, he still has a pretty good chance. And I just think, so, so this not, it's not like you feel like you really need the hail Mary at this point. The other part of this is like the, just the meta part of getting this, how do you do this? So you're not going to publicly come out and say you're going to be a one-term president, but you're going to privately say it so that young voters who are unenthused about a Joe Biden presidency will be, you know, assuaged in some way, but then you never actually say, I mean, that just feels like a bank shot that I don't even understand how that works. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing about no, no, no. I mean, it, because it gives I mean, it gives the way they've done it right, they, to this point. It's an open platform for anyone who is anti Biden. And I mean, I, I definitely am including Democratic primary voters in, in, in that group to say, if you can't do two terms, you shouldn't be running for one. Right. Um, whether or not you actually are. I mean, whether or not it's true, you know, I mean, you're giving you're giving people the platform to kind of attack you and you don't really get any of the benefit from it. And I don't even know what the benefit would be. I mean, I, this idea that like he's going to find someone to turn the reins over to. Well, first of all, if you don't find someone to turn the reins over to, then like, and he and he's decided to run again. Well, then I mean, that's he's in, that's a. It's like you're doubling down on this dumb decision, right? That you're like the acknowledgement that you're too old to do it in four years, and then like, oh, but I guess I'll have to do it. But then, and then if he does find somebody, or just the idea that he wants to find somebody, sounds a whole lot like Trump saying he's going to hire all the best people. You know, I mean, the mm-hmm. idea that like. We, we like we like Joe Biden above all should be trusted to find the next Joe Biden. I mean, it just all seems sort of just just wrongheaded. I don't I don't know. I mean, it's just a bad idea. Finally, this tweet, David, from NBC's Benji Sarlin. I thought you would enjoy this. He writes, fun fact, a one term pledge is the first of three rituals that summon a 500 foot tall Aaron Sorkin from the ancient <laughs> depths who destroys the universe. The other two pledges are a broken convention and a bipartisan national ticket. <laughs> I also saw the joke a lot. It's like, when is when is Biden going to float the idea that he may pick Condi Rice as his vice president? And oh that that gosh. really that really is the script here, right? Picking Condi. I'm a one termer broker convention. Let's go all the way. All right, David. Time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter. Made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Great Britain and the Conservatives won a smashing victory in the parliamentary elections yesterday. They won 48 more seats than they did in the election two years ago. It's the biggest Tory victory since the high Thatcher period. In the closing days of the race, we saw this Washington Post headline, quote, Boris Johnson accused of hiding in fridge in order to avoid interview with Piers Morgan. <laughs> it was an overworked Twitter joke to write. It's the most relatable thing I've ever heard about Boris Johnson. <coughs> Matter what you think of his victory. News David from the Wall Street Journal, the online luggage startup Away. Oh, yeah. Away is the name of this company, says their CEO is stepping down. Would you believe there were a lot of both away and luggage puns in the replies <laughs> of that tweet? Uh, <laughs> she needed to pack her bag and go. <laughs> Sounds good to me. T 
T-U-M-I to me. <laughs> oh, no. You'll think she'll find as good a role aboard another company. <laughs> oh, my God. And this was some pleasingly inside baseball. My favorite barbecue sauce is Sweet Baby Aways. <laughs> Thanks to Aaron Schaefer. All right. For sending that along. And finally, speaking of pals, our pal Scott Tobias sends along this headline. Disney CEO Bob Iger arranging meeting with Martin Scorsese <laughs> after nasty Marvel comments. Arranging a meeting. Lots of funny references to the Irishman's meeting between Jimmy Hoffa and Tony Pro. Remember that in Miami <laughs> yes. in the movie? It uh, was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Iger better not show up wearing shorts. <laughs> Thanks to Scott for that. If you thought a Hollywood peace summit was as fraught as a 70s Teamsters peace summit, Imagine that. Congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And let us get into the case of Greta Thunberg and Time. This week, the 16-year-old climate activist was named Time's Person of the Year. Donald Trump ignored this fact or took it with a sense of Zen detachment. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. He tweeted, so ridiculous. Greta must work on her anger management problem. Then go to an old-fashioned movie with a friend. Chill, Greta, chill. I have two reactions. A good old-fashioned movie? <laughs> Is she going to buy a box of Milk Duds and watch Cary Grant do his thing at the, at the Nickelodeon? That's so bizarre. That's Number two so reaction bizarre. is that Trump was replying to a tweet from actress Roma Downey. Yes, Roma <laughs> Downey of the old show Touched by an Angel. So he didn't just come upon this news. It was in his feed because he follows Roma Danny. I, I don't know. The mind reels. No, she's, um, um, she's Mark Burnett's wife. Oh, that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> that, okay. I, I only that's know this from photo it. research. That's it. That he's, I'm sure he's on the, his very short okay. follow list. But Roma Downey was saluting Greta Thunberg, by the way. Oh, really? Dang. Yeah. That must, that must be what pissed him off. <laughs> You're going to be shocked to know that Roma Downey was not roasting a 16-year-old climate activist. Just about everyone on Twitter noted that we're just days away from someone making a joke, a very mild joke, about Baron Trump's name and the White House taking great and extremely fake exception to that. Now Trump is directly trolling a 16-year-old on Twitter. Uh, Holly Figueroa O'Reilly of the WAPO and The Guardian says on Twitter, Nothing like going after a young girl with Asperger's syndrome to drive home the point that you are fit for office. I also want to bring this up, David. No offense to Time Magazine, but isn't it true that Trump cares more about time than any sentient news consumer on this planet? Yes. I mean, we he talk about like, you know, the Trump bump that all these news organizations are getting. W won't Times be the biggest Trump bump? Because there's just no chance that who is ever as president after Donald Trump. Well, maybe Joe Biden. Joe Biden might get to like 25% of as much as Trump cares about time. But there's no <laughs> chance that anybody becomes president after Trump will care nearly as much about time. I mean, I guess it goes hand in hand with a lot of his sort of old fashioned tendencies. Everything down to like, you know, making all of his notes in Sharpie uh, on pieces of paper or on magazine or on newspaper articles. But Trump. Obviously cares deeply about Time Magazine. He had, he famously had the fake Time cover hanging in his golf clubs uh, with mm -hmm. with himself on the front. Um, 
apparently on the campaign trail, I mean, lately, I mean, in, 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 um, you know, his big public appearances, he's been, he talks about being the, you know, potential of being the time man of the year, or person of the year, and kind of joking about how it used to be man and now it's person and my, how things have changed. Um, he's obsessed with it all the way down to, I mean, this is totally a sidebar, but that former White House staffer, Mina Chang, who turned out to be a fraudster, had her own Time magazine oh cover, which is fantastic. You really know, she really incredible. knew how to ingratiate herself to the to the president. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's so it's just so transparent, you know, and and I mean, obviously, he's gone after Greta Thunberg and like re- truly just like inappropriate, offensive ways before this. But it's just weird that he treat that he's treating her in the kind of you know, anger management with all these, you know, all this stuff. It's like he's trying to caricature her in the same way that he does his political opponents. And and all it really is doing, I mean, talking about the Trump bump, all it's doing is like serving to make it look like she is going toe to toe with the president of the United States. Right. I mean, that he, that he, <laughs> she is, I know. I mean, that, that, and that's it. I mean, he's like giving her so he's, he's giving her all this attention and um, yeah, I mean, time magazine is certainly going to benefit from this. I mean, I, you know, one of these years is just not going to be a time person of the year. At least there won't be a print magazine to to uh, to go out and buy on the newsstand after it's announced. And um, and this is, you know, a huge boon to a to a, you know, print magazine and a kind of floundering industry. This is like the fountain of youth for time. It's like how many years has Trump injected into the time person of the year just by caring who it is? Like how how many people in the world were speculating or worrying about who that was going to be, besides Donald Trump? But hey, he's president. So, do you remember when we used to go to Six Flags in high school, <laughs> and they would have like the photo booth where they would put your picture on a fake Time cover or like Fortune oh, yeah. or something like that? Yeah. And it was it was really of a piece with like the giant giraffe you could hypothetically win or the cool monogram Dallas Mavericks basketball if you hit the shot in the rigged basketball hoop. <laughs> like who who thought that would become this major political prop of the 2010s? But here we are. When was the last time you do you remember eagerly anticipating the announcement of person of the year? I mean it was cool, you know, it was like it was a noteworthy thing when Obama won it. I remember that being a sort of, you know, political football in its own right. Um George Bush, W Bush uh, won it. I mean, but but like, I feel like you remember when they when the when the person of the year was you, which is shockingly this is like thirteen <laughs> years ago now, and, and I don't mean you, Brian Curtis. Uh-huh. I mean like the word you and like a forget. mirror. Um, mm-hmm. like that's a, I feel like that's the last time I remember anyone having like a thoughtful conversation about the subject. And thoughtful might be the wrong word, but like actually caring. Um, yeah, I, it's oh. I'm just looking right now. Of course, Rudy Giuliani, uh, some might have forgotten, was the 2001 person of the year. I guess there's, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of significance attached to this list, but there's also, you know, the protester was the winner of 2011. You know, I mean, like Good Samaritans 2005, whistleblowers Good in Samaritans. 2002. Yeah, Good Samaritans meaning like rich people who give to charity or who have charitable foundations. I, I just don't. Not <laughs> <laughs> somebody that stops on the side of the road and helps you change your tire, Good Samaritan. No, I mean, listen, if this were any other, I don't, I'm not saying that this is like an impeachable offense carrying this so much about Time magazine, but this would be, this fixation would be, would be galling if it were in any normal presidency, right? I mean, and that's to say nothing of him just going after, <laughs> just going after a teenager on Twitter because he didn't win. 
Department of Transforming News into a Take. I want to bring you back, David, to the aforementioned British election results and the land rush to come up with a way that they can be linked to whatever you think should be happening in American politics. Okay. <laughs> you, you watch the news about a fairly unfamiliar, complicated election process. And you're like, how can I, how can I make a Bernie Sanders take? How can I make a Pete Buttigieg take? You sent me a couple of examples of this. Just read some headlines. This is in Politico. Biden warns that Boris Johnson's victory shows dangers of parties leaning too far left. <laughs> Andrew Sullivan had a whole, he was on a roll yesterday. This is, this is Andrew Sullivan's corner. Jeremy Corbyn, the American and the American left. I feel it's like if there's one person, <laughs> the bat signal went up last night. Uh, he says, simple lesson. There's a big majority in us and UK for anti PC nationalism wedded to leftist economics. The first Democrat to get there wins anti PC nationalism, uh, in the guardian Britain needs its own Mueller report on Russian interference. <laughs> Whoa. That's by the I way was, that 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 editor is that's an opinion piece and it's written by like the, I believe by the two founders of um of Fusion GPS or whatever that place is called. So oh, I mean wow. like so the don't if if you were if you're wondering if like the right end of the uh, Twitterverse has already noticed this the answer is yes. I like it when we talk about how people can consume more information now. I like it when everybody gets to play the British political expert when something like this happens. Yes. We don't we don't consume it that fast. You don't really know that much about this <laughs> and probably not enough to construct a shaky suspension bridge to whatever you think should happen in American politics. A lot of great tweets from actual British celebrities who had their own, who actually voted in this election, perhaps mm -hmm. Hugh Grant, who's had kind of a big week on Twitter, <laughs> uh, wrote, there goes the neighborhood. Neighborhood yeah. with a U, that's which the I best appreciate part. it. Yeah, that, I mean that says that's the that's the whole thing right there. <laughs> and Irvine Welsh, author of Train Spotting and other books, uh, I think wins with "Looks like the Starks voted Lannister." <laughs> yes, he's appealing to the Ringer audience with that one. No, I mean, I, I listen. I said before we, as we were discussing this, this, uh, this topic, or the, or the, the, you know, discussing, discussing this topic before the show came on. I said, you know, we should say something. We should talk about it, but also reserve the right to go back to it whenever the story continues to evolve. But because it, you know, it is a big deal. But you're right. I mean, just like the, in so much as it's, in so much as it will continue to be an issue, and 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 if it has any effect, or if if there's any lessons to be learned, um you know, in U.S. politics at all. I think it's the Starks voting Lannister is, 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 I mean, at this point, looks like it's the story, right? I mean, it was just the conservative party was able to, you know, to tack way left on economics and, and, uh, and this is me talking like I know what I'm talking about, but they're able to well, tack, tack National way Health left. Service. Yeah. Right. And, and in a way, and, and the, and the, you know, super lefty Labor Party uh, was just not, just not dexterous about the campaign at all. I, um, you know, there will be, we're going to continue to, I mean, especially as we keep down this path towards our own election, this will, this is going to be a data point, but man, uh, I, I, I think I absorbed all about, about all I needed to absorb, um, on Twitter pretty much immediately after it happened. Everybody was raring to go with these takes. The, um, soundbite of the week 
It's a little cheap to play Jesse Waters sound on this podcast. But when the Fox News talking head is defending the right of movies to have female reporters sleep with their sources, as one does in the movie Richard Jewell, well, especially in the current media environment, Jesse, especially in this current media environment. And just as an example, this happens all the time. Allie Watkins was a reporter for many, many years at many distinguished publications. She slept with one of her sources, allegedly, for four years and broke a lot of scoops, according to this Politico report here. So it happens a lot, and it happens a lot in movies and, and TV shows. Just a list right here. Fletch, um, <laughs> with, with Thank You for Smoking, Top 5, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I mean, it's all over Hollywood. Now they pick a problem with a Clint Eastwood movie? Come on. And you know what? How has someone not made a movie in Hollywood about all this deep state garbage going on in the Trump campaign? You have villains like Comey and McCabe. You have a celebrity like Trump. You have the Russians. It's such a juicy angle, but they don't touch it. Well, Clint, no, Madam Trump Secretary. Trump will be the villain in every movie. Um, <laughs> Fletch? Fletch is a man, just in case anyone's unfamiliar with that movie. Uh, so did you hear the laughs from the panel? Yeah. What level of funny do you have to be to be considered <laughs> funny on Fox News? Because uh, that not, wasn't even that very. wasn't even funny. Like that wasn't even like him trying to be like he's not funny. But that wasn't even him trying to be funny. He's like, yeah, this, can you imagine these leftists? We, I need some advanced laughing. I need an advanced metric that compares Fox News funny to Fox NFL Sunday funny, where just like no matter what you say, <laughs> everyone else How is forced by, by contract to guffaw as loudly as possible at every comment. I think that I think it has largely replaced. I was watching. I accidentally watched a Jimmy Fallon clip this week, which I try never to do. Uh-huh. I think it was Carrie Russell doing Star Wars impressions or something. <laughs> and I'll Jimmy, check that out. Jimmy. Jimmy Fallon has really taken over fake laugh corner from NFL pregame shows and even in this case, cable news. Oh, wow. I have never seen anyone performatively laugh like Jimmy Fallon does. It is, <laughs> it is absolutely freaking wild. I mean, the per like there's, there's, a, there's a, there's like a moment to have that kind of, you know, courtesy laugh or just even genuine laugh at the end. He's just doing it like every five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> You're just wedging in as many performative laughs as you could possibly imagine. It's really amazing. Listener mail, David. Bunch of you wrote in about the last few episodes missing the signature Jim Cunningham produced mashups of our voices. First off, thank you for noticing Jim's insanely good work. Yes. Number two, it's not dead. We promise. We've just been jerking Jim around with the scheduling lately. <laughs> Mostly for holiday reasons. And David and I will be fake talking to each other at the end of an episode really soon. So anyway, it's coming back and thank you for noticing. Um, David, we talked about impeachment on Tuesday and how it would be covered by an NBA insider. <laughs> Listener Ben writes in to say, really think a draft analyst would love to talk about length <laughs> when talking about drafting impeachment articles. Not sure That's why we didn't think of stuff. that. No. No, we're working too quickly. We talked about Clint Eastwood's new movie about Richard Jewell, which opens today. Uh, We talked about the movie's portrayal of Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Kathy Scruggs, who reported on Jewell. The movie apparently implies she traded sex for scoops, digging up an ugly old stereotype about female reporters. 
Olivia Wilde, who plays um, Scruggs in the movie, had a Twitter thread this week. She writes, the perspective of the fictional dramatization of the story, as I understood it, was that Kathy and the FBI agent who leaked false information to her were in a pre-existing romantic relationship, not a transactional exchange of sex for information. My previous comments about female sexuality were lost in translation, so let me be clear. I do not believe sex positivity and professionalism are mutually exclusive. Kathy Scruggs was a modern, independent woman whose personal life should not detract from her accomplishments. She unfortunately became a piece of the massive puzzle that was responsible for the brutal and unjust vilification of, a, of an innocent man, Richard Jewell, and that tragedy is what this film attempts to shed light on. A couple of thoughts on that. First of all, it's it's interesting that apparently somebody putting together this movie thought that Scruggs and the FBI agent were in a relationship. Mm-hmm. That is not something I have seen printed. It was not in Marie Brenner's massive Vanity Fair article that formed the basis of that movie. I'm I'm pretty free for movies to be to exist within the bounds of historical fiction. In fact, I sort of hate it when journalists all gang up and say, you know, that's not how it really happened. That's not it's like, yeah, it's not this is not a news article. This is a movie. So they're gonna have to 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 make changes to it. But if you're talking about a real person in this case who is not famous, not a celebrity, and you are essentially imputing this big thing about her career that is one of the big, big, big no-nos of the profession that casts light directly on her professionalism, I think you are sort of obliged to show your work somewhere outside the bounds of the movie. You know, if Billy Ray, who wrote the screenplay, wants to write an op-ed, say, here's why I came to that conclusion by talking to X, Y, and Z, people around the case, all that kind of stuff, that then then great. And that's why I came to that. Then at least we kind of understand. But again, this is not a if this is not a famous person. No. So I do think they have, if that's really how they came to this, it wasn't just let's spice up this movie and make it more interesting, then they should they should come out and say that. And then we can judge that on its own merits. Yeah. I, th- I, I think, I, I think that's right. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, you played the Jesse waters quote, I mean, clip earlier and I, you know, there were a lot of people who were just saying unfortunate things online, trying to defend this, you know, this decision. And I mean, the, I mean, part, part, part of the issue is that, I mean, well, listen. I mean, a lot of people are saying that it that that this happens all the time in real life, or, or and or this isn't a this is not a trope in the way you know in the way that it was described. I mean, that's the problem is that is what Waters said is that it, it has been in a lot of movies, right? I mean, and that it's just utterly lazy at this point. Um, this movie's being singled out because it's happening right now. It's not being unfairly singled out. It's being un, it's being singled out because it's coming out and it's still making the dumb decisions of of you know the years and decades past. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, you got You got to show your work. I mean, there's not. I. There, I don't. I still. You know, kind of at a loss for what the necessity of this was. You know, if somebody thought, believed it to be true, I guess you're right. I mean, th- that's something we need to know. Um, I mean, that that would at least help explain it. But you know, I, I think that I find it hard to imagine that if the reporter had been a man, that this is the story they would have told. Right? I find it hard to imagine that that, that no. they, it was so like it was such a necessity in terms of drama. 
I don't think they would have turned a reporter from a man into a woman simply to have to to make this to you know to have that because that trope was so invaluable to the movie. Um, it was just a lazy. It was just just lazy sexist trope, you know. And the, and it, we can just leave it at that. I should hope. Yeah, I I, uh, I just don't. I mean, again and again, I just want to add that like. I really do want movies to exist on a totally different plane than journalism. And I, and I get, I get tired, I get tired of the just yeah. obligatory op-ed about every fucking historical movie. Well, that's not what happened. You know, as if that's like, like movies should, if, if you make a movie about Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Steve jobs or other people like that. Yeah. I just, I just feel there's there, there should be lots of elbow room for you to treat it like you would a novel about those people, you know, there should be so much room for historical fiction, but this, in this case, this just feels very, very different. And again, if that is, if that's the claim, I, I want to see, I want to see that treated journalistically outside the bounds of the movie. I did want to comment on something else, which is we have on the one hand, this scuzzy, crappy portrayal of Kathy Scruggs. I do see people then making the leap from that to a kind of blanket defense of her and the work the Atlanta Journal Constitution wrote about Richard Jewell, which to me is two very, very different arguments. You can be really uncomfortable with the first and reject it completely and say that sucks. And the second one, I think, at least requires you to say this is a really big, complicated story and something you can't just push away. I saw this tweet from Kelly McBride, who's the SVP of Pointer chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership. McBride tweets, feeling queasy about the Richard Jewell movie. It's true that journalists made mistakes, but the work of the AJC's Kathy Scruggs held up. That's just way too broad a brush to me to put on this. I've seen other articles, or at least one other article come out and, and kind of do the same thing. I'm not going to completely go down this wormhole. Maybe I'll put a few of the uh, deep dives that were written at the time about the c- coverage of Richard Jewell. But if you just look at the third paragraph of the initial report, Scruggs and the AJC did on Jewell, it had this sentence that said he had approached the newspaper seeking publicity. Uh, this was in line with that hero bomber theory that was going around at the time that, oh, Jewell is... Jewel did this and then he's going around taking this victory lap, right? He's, he's, he's calling us to get us to interview him. Jewel did not in fact do that. AT&T whose pavilion he was working in did that on his behalf. So that, that was like an error in the first article about this. So this idea that everything held up, not to mention all these articles were about the guy who did not do it. (laughs) Yeah. You know that I just, I don't, we cannot say, oh, well, she was reflecting what the feds and the cops thought at the time and leave it at that. That That's not enough for me. This is, this, this is a very complicated thing. And there's a reason this is an interesting story. And, and again, I, you, don't, you don't absolutely do not have to accept the portrayal in the movie. I don't, I won't, to understand that the part about the writing about Richard Jewell that happened is, is, is not something we can wave away. Oh, it all held up. I, I just don't believe that. Um, we flippantly asked on Tuesday's pod, does Clint Eastwood even know any journalists? Oh, uh, TJ Wanderslug notes that he was married to TV anchor Dina Ruiz for 17 years. So David and I regret the flippancy. <laughs> <laughs> Listener Nicholas Moore asks, 
Could you rank the top five most accurate depictions of journalism in film? And top five least accurate? Uh, I don't know that I have 10, David. Well, In terms of accurate, do you have any you'd like to nominate? I was going to say, we actually don't, I mean, you know, we don't actually have to do this work because Kate Nibbs did it for us, did it on the ringer.com, um, what, like two weeks ago. So she ranked. She did. She she ranked the top 40, 45 movie journalists, uh, apparently left Fletch off the list, which was a huge omission. But, um, you know, she worked, but, but most of, but, but listen, the work holds up, as some might say. Um, yeah, there, I mean, I, I could, I'll go through the bottom or the top of her list. So the, the, I mean, the, the, the top five. Um, let's see. Rosamund Pike and a private war. I've not seen that one. Okay. Uh, the crew of spotlight was, uh, was number four. Fantastic work there. Um, set <laughs> number three, Seth Rogen and long shot. Um, he was, he, his ethics were sky high in that. Number two was, uh, Redford and Hoffman <laughs> from all the president's men. And, uh, go. and number one was, uh, um, the killing fields. Uh, Oh, that's an interesting one. So, Sam I mean, Waterston. yeah. So, I mean, there's a, you know, there, there's a, there are a whole lot of iterations of this out there. I, I recommend everybody check out this piece. It was, it's uh, incredibly smart and incredibly funny, as we expect from Nibs. But the, um, but yeah, it's a, it is a, it's amazing with how, as you we discussed last time, how kind of uninteresting journalism is and journalists as a rule are that there are so many of them in, in films. Yeah. It's, it is. And I, and I think, because again, I think there's a big gap between the romance of the profession and the journalists themselves and the actual interestingness of what their daily lives are like. And if I had to pick, you know, spotlight and, and all the president's men, minus the amazing garage encounters do a pretty good job of just showing what life is like, Yeah, you know, how it's making phone calls and sitting in front of a computer terminal. It'd be, it'd be fun. It'd be fun if it wasn't, but that's what journalism is. All right. Time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Okay. There is your sigh. Tuesday's headline about the fall of WeWork founder, Adam Newman was the boy who cried work. (laughs) As usual, our listeners are funnier than we were. Pandiora says it should have been from we woke to we broke. Tom Ganjami (laughs) says, I'm a fool to do your dirt, we work. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. TJ says the headline should have been, we walked into that one. And your dad uh, says it simply should have been, we weren't. (laughs) It's a certain certain beautiful simplicity to that. This week's strain pun is from Brad Boron. It's from the site The Spool. Uh, And for once, we know the artist behind the headline, David, because... I had to tweet at him to figure out where this was from. It's Clint Worthington, who was editor of The Spool. He put this wondrous headline atop a review of the movie, Richard Jewell. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you a few hints here. I want It's a little da-da. So you're going to take the protagonist's surname and join it with a mid-tier 80s action movie. Protagonist's surname, mid-tier 80s action movie. What was the spools strained pun headline? Jewel, um, or mid tier mid mid tier eighties action movie. I'm like stuck. I'm stuck on the Pink Panther, but that's not it, right? It's not like a James Bond wouldn't be mid tier. 
I'm trying to think mm-hmm. like what would have jewel. Oh, I know. James I James Bond was pretty mid tier in the '80s. Go for it. Uh, um, uh, I was about to say romancing. It's the other one, not romancing the stone. Uh-huh, uh huh. The sequel. What's the other with? one? Oh, jewel of the jewel of the Nile. Uh, ju- uh um, is it jewel of denial? <laughs> is that? There <laughs> we go. Jewel of Denial. That's a fantastic title. I don't quite get it, but that's fantastic. That's great. Oh, it's you don't need to get it, right? Yeah, that's, it's, that's it's, really is good. It Clint Eastwood's Denial of Modernity. Is it? Oh yeah. The press's Denial of the Truth. Jewel of Denial. Fantastic. Fantastic. Extreme pun headline. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production Magic by Bobby Wagner. We're back Tuesday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>